perhaps the reasons why Penina is provoking Hannah, because she's locked up in this too. She's caught up in the cultural ideal. There's two cultural ideals. Have lots of kids and please your husband. And she's got one of those, but not the other. And she feels the tension. She knows that Hannah is the favorite and she's not. And because of that, she will thunder against her rival. She will treat her like garbage because she's lacking that love from Elkanah. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to grab it and to look for the book of 1 Samuel. That's near the beginning of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel. Look for 1 and 2 Samuel, or 1 Samuel, chapter 1, starting at verse 1. While you're looking for that, we're in a new series, as Pastor Marcel has shared with you, called Shadow King, and it is all about the rise of a new king, King David and how he is the archetype for kingship in our minds. However, as the story will unfold, we will understand that even though David was the greatest king of Israel, he also disappoints in the end. And as we look at the story, by the end, we're left asking a question saying, is that it? Like, David was the best of us, and if David can fail... If David still bangs his head on sin and brokenness the same way that all of us do, then is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for the world? And so I I just want to speak with the end in mind, get to the punchline. David's story in the Bible is meant to point us forward to a new king, a better king who is yet to come. And that better king is not only going to be from God, he's going to be God in the flesh. The story of 1 Samuel, the story of David, is meant to call us into a greater king, the son of David, the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And I want you to have the eyes to see that everything that we're going to be looking at over the course of the next couple of months is pointing us to Jesus Our need for Jesus, our need for a Messiah, a Redeemer, a a person who will make all things new, even though David couldn't be that. He can be that for us. And then it's going to show us what it looks like for us to follow this King of Kings in our lives today. Today, right here and right now. So last week we started off this series... And uh, we looked at the story behind the story. We looked at the book of Judges, which ended this way. Let me read this for you. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what what was right in their own eyes. And each of those two sentences is important for us to understand. When it says that Israel had no king, it's highlighting to us that when Israel came out of Egypt, they went into the wilderness, and then eventually they went to Canaan, they went to the land of promise, and once they went into the promised land, almost instantly, they started crying out for a king. God, we need a king, because they're looking at all the surrounding nations, 
And they're saying, if we, can, if we want peace, if we want prosperity, if we want security, if we want hope, then we got to have a king. That's what we need. We need a king to save us. All the national success and all the peace that comes with that, the stability that comes with it, is brought through a king. And yet, what we find is that eventually God is going to tell us through his servant Samuel that God is disappointed in Israel in this for the reasons why they want an earthly king. We read this in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Listen to all the people are saying to you, it is not you, Samuel, they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. And so the problem, the problem Israel has isn't their lack of an earthly king, it's that they fail to acknowledge God as their one true king, Lord of all, Lord of their lives. And that's revealed by what the author says next. It says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I shared with you last week, that could be true of our own age as well. Each of us deciding what is true, what is admirable, what is noble, what is trustworthy. Each of us, we're, we're individualistic. We get to decide what is true. We get to decide what is right. And so I, I mean to share with you, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. All of us are dealing with exactly the same issues that the people of Israel were during this time, albeit in a different way. And the last five chapters of Judges reveals what happens to a culture that is focused on determining what is true and what is right for themselves. Five of the most gruesome, grotesque, ugly chapters in the entire Bible. And it's not surrounding nations, it's Israel. Those who are struggling with God, the people of God, and they're doing despicable things because they're trying to do what is right in their own eyes, as opposed to what is right according to God's will. And I just think that preaches. I just think we're all grappling with that too. And so that's where the story applies to you and to me. All of us, every single person in this room, everyone who's watching online is searching for a king. We're searching for what is right. We're searching for what's the meaning of it all? What's the purpose of life? How do I determine what is true for myself, for security, for safety, for stability? What's true for me? And for some of you, it's marriage. You think to yourself, oh man, if I could just get married or if I could just stay happily married, then I'm going to achieve that nirvana. Everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be fine. If I could just find that soulmate, that person who's going to complete me and fulfill me, then life is going to be good. If someone would just love me, that's what I need. And others of you, it might not be marriage. It might be an established career. You say, I just got to climb the corporate ladder, or I need my business to be successful. I need to make it. I need to make a name for myself. Then I'll achieve the good life. Others of you, it might be with a little bit of a twist. It's not so much about your business. It's just about having enough money for the sake of security. If I had enough money, then I would be secure. Then I would be safe. Then I would have a strong identity. I've shared with you before, Barna Research has been studying this for over 20 years. When they asked the average Christian, how much money do you need to be filled with hope or to be satisfied? It's almost always exactly the same answer. You know what it is? 
Double what you got now. If you're making 50000 a year, all you need is $100,000. Life's going to be good. You're making 100000 all you need is two. You're making two, all you need is four. You're making half a million, all you need is a million. You just need a little bit more. And man, if I just had that, then I would be secure. Everything would be good. Then I would be able to take care of everything. And oh God, it would be so, so good. And for some of you, maybe it's your family. You're trying to live vicariously through your children or through your spouse or through the, the security or the peace of your family. And if I could just have my kids close or if I could just have my grandkids close and I could live vicariously through them, then I could remake past mistakes and everything will be good. All that is to say we're looking for our sense of identity in created things. And I've shared with you for four years, what is idolatry? It's taking a good thing, making it a God thing, and on account of that, it becomes a broken, tainted, and terrible thing. Good things that God has made for us. Good things that we should cherish and enjoy, and yet they become terrible things. Because you put your hope in it. You put your sense of identity and self-worth in it. And it will not satisfy your soul. And so last time I, I ended asking you this question. What happens if tomorrow God takes away your idols? What happens if tomorrow God takes away your idols? Here's what I want you to see. Whatever that thing is where you are seeking your stability, you're seeking your security or your safety, that's your idol. That's your king. That's your king. And so I want you to hang on to that as we read this story this morning, which is going to have echoes of everything we learned in the story behind the story with Judges. So if you have your Bibles, look at this with me. 1 Samuel chapter 1, starting at verse 1. It starts this way. There was a certain man from Ramathim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Now, stop right there. This, this is interesting. You have to see what the author is doing. Do you remember how Judges ends? It ends this way. In those days, Israel had no king. And then first Samuel opens with the story of a man with the right resume, from the right tribe, from the right nation, in the right place. And instantly, the question that every single Hebrew is asking when they read this first verse is, could this be the one? Is this the Messiah? Is this the king we've all been waiting for? Is this the guy? And here's what's interesting. It is a story about a king, but it isn't. It's a twist. And we see that the very first story that is unveiled in 1 Samuel isn't so much the story of a king as it is a story about the private grief of a woman named Hannah. Let's take a look at this. If you still have your Bibles, look with me at verse 2. He had two wives, that being Elkanah. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests to the Lord. 
Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept, and she would not eat. So what we have here is a man who has two wives. One is having lots of children. The other is having none. And the one who is having lots of children is provoking and mocking the one who can't. And down in verse 10, we see that Hannah is experiencing deep anguish. That's what it says there in your Bible. But the Hebrew literally means bitter grief of the soul. Her soul is being ripped apart. She is overwhelmed with anguish and with grief. But then we ask ourselves this question, what's the sorrow about? What's, what's all that about? And there's a couple of reasons for this. The, the first one, which I think is notable, we can't spend too much time on this, it's because she's in a polygamist marriage. Now, it's interesting, um, as a bit of a, an apologetic here, it's a bit of a sidebar, but I think it's important. One of the great arguments against Christianity that I hear a lot is that we're inconsistent with our ethics. And one of the examples, if you ask for one, that is often given is, well, uh, polygamy is encouraged in the Old Testament, but you Christians don't do it any longer, so you're inconsistent in your biblical pattern. But, but here's what I would always want to tell them. Every single instance in the Old Testament of a polygamist marriage, everyone is miserable. Everyone's miserable. This is not prescriptive, go ye and do likewise. This is descriptive of people who are banging their heads on things and not living rightly in the way that God has called them to live. Every single story is like this one, filled with despair, filled with sadness. And I think it, it takes a very close reading of the text to see that this is not being highlighted as something like, go ye and do likewise, you should all do this. It's being highlighted as, this is just what happened. This is what Elkanah chose to do. And it broke down the family. So the first reason why she's unhappy is because she's in a polygamist marriage. But more specifically, the reason why Hannah is so sad is because she's not living up to the cultural ideal of the day. And what is that? She can't bear children. She can't have any kids. She's barren. Do you know what Hannah means? It means beloved. And most certainly she is. We can tell from the story that Hannah is Elkanah's first love. He married her first. He loves her dearly. But she can't have any children. And so he goes and he marries someone else named Peninnah. Do you know what Peninnah means? It means fruitful. And sure enough, she is, because she's having tons of kids, loads of kids. Verse 4 talks about all of her sons and all of her daughters. And so she's just having tons of kids. And then I think verse 2 puts it most starkly in the story. It says, Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. And to this day, barrenness is something that some couples experience, which brings intense agony and grief. And many of you here have experienced that in your own lives, and you know this too well. 
the pain that comes when you had a dream of having your own children, and that's just not in the cards for you. The Lord did not give that to you. But barrenness in the Old Testament has added theological significance that I think we often miss. Before you say something like, oh man, the, the stories in the Bible, they're just so antiquated, right? I'm just so glad I didn't grow up in a, a culture or a context like that. I want you to remember the reasons why bearing children in the Old Testament was such an enormous cultural good for the people of Israel and why people who had children were considered to be cultural heroes. Here's the first reason. Uh, the first is that the society during that time was agrarian, which meant if you had children, then you had laborers who could go out into the field and to help with work. And so presumably because of that, you have more workers in the field, then you have a greater income, a greater yield. You can do more work and you have more stability that comes with that because there's no retirement funds, there's no TFSAs, there's no social insurance, none of that. Your social insurance policy is your children. Kids, think about this, all right? It's your kids, right? They don't have anything else. And so without having children, they, they don't have that security blanket. But not only that, the, for the nation of Israel itself, having children was a sign of a growing military and a growing economy. And if you had more children, everyone else around you within that culture, they would praise your name. They'd be so grateful for you. You are considered a cultural hero because you have seven sons and they can go off and they can fight battles and wars and protect the land. And so they were so grateful for that. And it helped with the economy overall. When people are giving their tithes and their offerings to the Levitical priesthood, there's more going into that pocket, more going into that pouch in order to bless the nation. And before you think that's antiquated, I just got to tell you a little story here. Julie and I, we lived in the U.S. for 14 years. And then we accepted a call to Gateway. We came back to Canada. We moved into our new house. And one of the very first pieces of mail we received was from the government. And it was a check. And we're like, what's this? You get money for having kids? Are you kidding me? That's so cool. And we've been getting checks every month ever since. What's all that about? Even to this day, thousands of years later, many developed countries in Europe and in Canada are saying, uh-oh, families aren't having enough kids keeping up with the mortality rate. We have to incentivize them to have more kids for the sake of the economy. Here's a check. So before you think all antiquated, we're doing the same things. There's nothing new under the sun. And finally, there's a theological focus at play here that I think is very difficult for us to understand because most of the people in this room, you know how the story ends. You know David comes along, he bangs his head on things, other uh, kings come in, they do terrible things, and then eventually comes Jesus and he goes to the cross, goes to Golgotha, stretches out his hand, and he dies and he rises again. Like We're, we're thinking about all those things. And yet... For someone who is in this cultural moment, who doesn't yet have the eyes to see Jesus, is the embodiment of everything to whom this points. Every single time they see a new birth in Israel, they're thinking about their Old Testament. Genesis chapter 4 says, From the seed of Adam will come one who strikes the head of the serpent. Genesis chapter 22 says, from the seed of Abraham will come the Savior for the people of Israel. So what that means is, every single birth in Israel provokes a question, is this the one? 
could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Savior, the chosen one, the one to whom we've all been waiting for? Every single new birth brings about that question. And so without children, without kids, there was no future for God's people and ultimately no hope for the world. So barrenness was a personal tragedy, much like it still is today, but it had added theological significance in this context that we just can't fully understand. And that is the reason why those who had many children were praised, and those who had none were often ostracized. And so again, before you say something like, I'm, I'm so glad I wasn't raised in a culture like this, I would like to just appeal to you that we do exactly the same thing today, albeit in very different ways. You know, the, the cultural ideal today might not be, you know, we want you to have lots of babies and lots of kids, but we put enormous cultural pressure on our kids today. Let me just share some things with you. Um, I, I looked at uh, Statistics Canada this past week, and did you know we have the highest rate of eating disorders, depression, thoughts of suicide, and use of opioid drugs than in our nation's history? What's that about? What are we dealing with today that's attributing to these trends? Don't fool yourself into thinking that we're just a free world and no one has any cultural pressure that's placed upon them. Our young people especially face enormous cultural pressure to fit in and to conform. Making sure that you look the right way, you act the right way, you have the right image on social media, the right academic grades, the right social environments. Man, the pressure that they face in order to live up to a certain cultural value, they know to some extent what Hannah is experiencing. We all do. And we're not immune from this because we're doing exactly the same things. There is no such thing as a non-oppressive culture. We just do it differently today than they did thousands of years ago. But we're still doing it. And so what made matters worse is that Penina. Elkanah's other wife is having lots of kids, right? That's verse 6, says that she grievously irritated Hannah. She is provoking Hannah. But that Hebrew word literally means to thunder, which is interesting. It's the only time in the entire Bible in which that word, that verb, is used to describe a human being provoking another human being as opposed to a natural catastrophe like an earthquake or a tsunami or thunder and lightning or something like that. This is what Penina is doing to the soul of Hannah. She is thundering against her. She is crushing her soul in the same way that many of us experience today in different ways. Hannah is overwhelmed with grief. But it's not just Peninnah's voice that we hear. We hear the voice of Peninnah provoking her, saying, you don't live up to the cultural ideal. But we hear a second voice, a very well-meaning voice, and it's the voice of her husband, Elkanah. Look at this with me. It's verse 8. You just got to feel for the guy. He says, her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? 
poor guy. Now here's what he's saying. Look at this. He says, I, I know you're not having any kids, but you have my love. Isn't my love enough for you? Isn't my love sufficient for you? Isn't that good enough? Shouldn't that be enough for you? Now, almost certainly, here's what this means. It means that Elkanah loved Hannah more than Peninnah, which once again is revealing perhaps the reasons why Peninnah is provoking Hannah, because she's locked up in this too. She's caught up in the cultural ideal. There's two cultural ideals. Have lots of kids and please your husband. And she's got one of those, but not the other. And she feels the tension. She knows that Hannah is the favorite, and she's not. And because of that, she will thunder against her rival. She will treat her like garbage because she's lacking that love from Elkanah. Once again, one of the great tragedies of polygamy that she's stuck in. But here's what's significant. I want you to take note of this. It's significant to see that Hannah does not respond to either of them. Hannah doesn't respond to either of them. There are two voices that are saying, here's what it means to be happy. Peninnah is saying, live up to the cultural ideal, which in this culture is, have lots of babies. And then Elkanah is saying, no, you don't have to do that. Push against that cultural ideal. Be the rebel. Find love in this instead. And in that instance, it is, find love in my love. Right? I will complete you. I will fulfill you. The Hollywood version of a rom-com. Like, I will make you happy. And so there's two competing voices, but ultimately they're saying exactly the same thing. Put your trust, your hope, your sense of self-worth in something other than God. In something other than God. And so some of you, like Panina, you're sucked into these cultural ideals. Like having kids, or having a secure job, or uh, having a good reputation with your peers, or looking beautiful, or whatever else it might be. And others of you, like Elkanah, you're just seduced by the, the world's version of love and acceptance. What I really need is for someone else to love me, and they will complete me. They will make me feel whole. And if I could just have a good relationship, good sex, good relationships like that, that's what's going to complete me. That's what I got to have. And others of you, you're looking for it in the stock market or you're looking for it in your wealth or your money or whatever else have you. You're looking for it in all the wrong places and it's all going to lead to the same place. It's going to lead to tragedy, heartache, and pain. Now think about this with me. What would have happened if Hannah was seduced by the idea of finding her sense of identity and self-worth in her husband? How would the story end? Well, I'll tell you. Here's what she would do. She would begin to provoke back Peninnah. She would say, yeah, you're right. I, don't, I, I can't have any children. But you know what I do have? I have the love of my husband. Do you have that? And she would feel right she would feel self-justified in that. Look at the way that you're treating me. You're treating me like garbage. Well, I can return the favor. Yeah, sure, you're having lots of kids, but I have the love of my husband. He takes me on vacations, takes me to Cancun, takes me to his bedroom. What does he have for you? You're just a baby-making machine. That's all you are. And she would provoke him and destroy his soul, or her soul, sorry. She would do exactly the same things, but she would do it even worse if she lived into Elkanah's view of what it meant to be a person who has an identity. 
Hannah would have turned right around and became a torrent of evil to Peninnah. So here's the plain main thing that I put in your note sheet. I, I want you to think about this. Any alternative to build your life on other than God leads to tragedy. Leads to tragedy. And so the first thing she does is she refuses both voices, both of them, Elkanah and Peninnah. And then the story tells us what she does do. Look at this. This is verse 9. Verse 9 says, Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Stop right there. She stood up. Okay, what's that mean? Of course, it just seems like a, a useless piece of information. Like, as I'm preaching to you, I am talking. I am standing. I am moving. Interesting. There you go. So, like, what's the point of this? We don't understand Hebrew idioms. And this is an example of an idiom. So let me give you a couple examples of this. When we say something like, I have butterflies in my stomach, it doesn't literally mean there's butterflies in my stomach. It means I'm nervous. Or if we say something like, once in a blue moon, we don't mean the moon is blue. We, means, we mean that's something that rarely happens. Or let's use an example of feet and movement. Kids, let me ask you a question. When your mom or your dad, they say they're putting their foot down, does that mean they're taking a step? No, it doesn't, does it? That means you're in a bit of a, a scuff, a bit of an argument. You're trying to get your way, and your parent just said, no is no, and that's final. She put her foot down. He put his foot down. That's what that means. And maybe you know that. Maybe you don't. Maybe you'll learn it one day. But in exactly the same way, that's what's happening here. This is a Hebrew idiom. And so what in Hebrew it literally says, Hannah Tacom, which means Hannah took charge. She took charge. She went from passive to active. She took decisive action. She stood up. She's taking charge of her life. And this story has been building in intensity over the course of the last few verses. And now it's saying, Hannah stood up. She's taken charge. Something's about to happen. It's the climax of the story. Maybe she's going to go up to Peninnah and punch her in the face. I don't know. Maybe something, something's about to happen. What's she going to do? And then we read in verse 11. Here's what she does. She prays. What's so significant about that? She prays. Verse 11. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty... If you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Hmm. What's so decisive about that? She prays. She prays. Now, at first glance, what does this look like? It, it, it kind of looks like Hannah is bargaining or bartering with God, doesn't it? Like, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Right? If you give me a son, then I'll bless you. I'll worship you. What's, what's like, the biggest promise I could ever make? Oh, God, if, uh, if you give me a son, then I will make myself a slave for the rest of my life. No, it's got to be bigger than that. Uh, if you bless my life, then I'll, I'll send my son into ministry as a pastor. Yeah, that's a big one. The poor pastors. That's what I should do. Like, what, what's going on here? What's the significance of this verse? Here's what I want you to see. This is, if Hannah was bargaining with God, then it would look like this. I put it this way in your note sheet, and we do this too. We would make a prayer request, the prayer would get answered, and then we would have peace. Prayer requested, prayer answered, 
peace. That's how we would do it. So let me give you an example of this. God, if you bless my life, then I will live my life for you. God, if you bless my business, then I will tithe the income of my business. God, if you bless me financially, then I will bless you in my tithes and offerings. If you give me my heart's desire, I will put my trust in you. If you scratch my back, I will scratch your back. See the sequence? And so here's a, a practical example of this. You know, um, for those of you who are in high school, grade 11, 12, you're, you maybe, some of you are thinking about what academic university or trade school to go to. And so if you were thinking about that and you send off your application, which shows your GPA and your extracurriculars and, and everything on that page, you send it off, you're not going to rejoice right away. You're not going to throw a party once you send your application. You're going to wait. And then when you get mail back that says you've been accepted, you can come to this academic institution, then you throw a party. Then you have peace. But that's not what Hannah is doing. Hannah's not doing that. Here's the sequence in this story, and I'm just calling it the Christian counter-response. A prayer is requested, and then there's peace, regardless of the answer. Look again at verse 18. It says this, She went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. You see that? That's significant. Her face is no longer downcast. It means that at the end of it, she doesn't know if God will answer her prayer or not, and yet she's still at peace. She has the peace before the prayer is answered. That's the point of this story. And so how do you get a peace like that? This is the question that I want us to focus on for a little while here. How do we get a peace like Hannah? How do we get a hope like Hannah? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, I will give him to the Lord, that's her son if she has a son, for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And so what Hannah is doing here, this is a Nazarite vow. Remember during those days, 12 tribes of Israel, 11 tribes are given a portion of the promised land. They can own assets, they can own land, they can have families of their own. But one tribe out of the, tr the 12, the tribe of Levi, the Levitical priesthood from Aaron and from Moses, they can't own any land. They can't have any assets. And a Nazarite is not a Levite by birth. They are volunteer Levites. They are volunteers of the Levitical priesthood. And the promise that she is making God is, I will make my own son a Levite. He will become a Nazarite. And that's what she's saying. Now, very quickly, I want to review with you the reasons why a woman might want to have a child during this time, which will show us that Hannah is not bargaining with God. This is not a, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. And we can see that with the commitment that she made. So very quickly, uh, the first reason why she's not bargaining with God is because if she wanted a son, one of the reasons would be because she wants to fit in. Here's what this culture looked like. Every single morning of every day, except for the Sabbath, women and their children would go to the marketplace. Children would play together. You would find your sense of identity and all the kids playing together, and then they would go home together. But if she has a son who has made a Nazarite vow, he's not coming with her. He's at the tabernacle. And so she's still alone. She's still walking by herself. Another reason why she might do this is for the sake of security. Because once again, if you have a son, that son will eventually learn the trade of 
her husband, of his father. The shop, the trade, the farm, whatever, it, it goes to him. And her security blanket is her son, her child, who has taken over the farm, taken over the business. But once again, he can't own any land. He can't have any assets. And so that's not something where a dream is going to be realized. And the third reason is just the simple reason, the simple gift of hugs and kisses and family dinners and all those things that you get to enjoy with your children. But if your son has made a Nazarite vow, the moment he is weaned, he goes to the tabernacle and she almost never sees him. So why would she do this? Why even make a commitment like this or, or make a request like this when you don't get to enjoy any of the material benefits of having your own son or daughter? Here's what Hannah is saying, which is so significant that I think we can all learn from this, regardless of if God answers your prayers or he hasn't yet. All of her life, Hannah has said, God, I have wanted to have a child for me. But now, I want to have a child for you. I want to have a child for you. Do you remember that question I asked you last week when we looked at Micah, the man with his own priest and with his own little shrine, his own little trinket? I asked you, what if God took away your idols tomorrow, just like Micah? And this is the way the story goes. After he lost everything, he said this, if you take away the gods I made and my priest, what do I have left? What do I have left? But Hannah is a person who gets it. See, if God gave Hannah a child before she made this discovery, then she would have coddled and controlled her child. She would have tried to live vicariously through her own kids. And as a result of that, she would have destroyed that kid, placing all of her identity in that kid. All of her hopes and her dreams and her aspirations in that kid. And that kid never would have satisfied her soul. And at the end of it, because of that, because of her false hope, because of her idolatry, she would have destroyed that child. And if God ever took that child away, she would say something like this. If I lose my son, what do I have left? What do I have left? God, if you take my idols away? My health, my spouse, my child, my reputation, my money, my business. God, if you took that away, I don't know what I would do. So here's a bit of an exercise that I would like to lay at your feet this morning. I, I want to speak to those of you whose hopes and dreams have been realized. God has given you the desire of your heart, but maybe you're teetering where you are putting your, place, your sense of identity in those things. Or maybe God hasn't yet given you the desire of your heart. You've been praying for something, and God has not answered that God-sized prayer. And you are beginning to lose doubt, lose faith in a faithful God. Either way, the point remains for both of you what I'm referring to as the idol test. Here's a question I would like for you to ask of yourself. Is my prayer or my dream something I want for God? or something I want for me? Is it something I want for God, or do I just want it for myself? Oh God, if you gave me this, I'd be happy. I don't know if it's your will or not, but man, I would be so happy if you gave this to me. 
Most of us want something out of a desire to fit in, out of a desire for security or to make a name for ourselves or to bless our own lives. And yet Hannah says, all my life I have wanted a child for me, for my identity, but now God, if you bless me with a child, I will give him to you, all for you and none for me. And so the Christian is someone who says, Lord, I, I know that the only place where I can uh, put my sense of identity and sense of self-worth and security and meaning and dependence and significance is in you, in you, God. I give myself to you, my hopes, my dreams, my, my aspirations, they're all yours now, Lord. Take my life and use it. And think about how this would change your prayer life. Let me just give you an example of this. Why is it the fact that so many big companies, like think about Blockbuster. Why did Blockbuster not think of Netflix? The big behemoth that like 25, 30 years ago, you would think it would never go down and now it's gone. Like some kids here, they're like, Blockbuster, what's that? Right? Why didn't they think of Netflix? Because here's what happens in institutions. After a while, you lose your entrepreneurial spirit because you're trying to hang on to what you have. We gotta contain what we've gained. And it happens everywhere. It happens in churches, it happens in, in institutions, it also happens in human hearts. And if you are your own and belong to yourself, then eventually what's going to happen is you are going to start playing protection mode, trying to control the little kingdom that you've made for yourself. But if you are not your own and you belong to God, then you have freedom, such freedom to say, God, everything I have, everything that I am, my kids, my marriage, my bank account, my business, all of it's yours. None of it's coming with me. And so I want to use it for the sake of your kingdom purposes. Do you see how this would radically change your prayer life? Your prayers would become far more bold, far more bodacious, if you live this way, if you recognize that you are not your own, but you belong to God and not to yourself. And so Hannah gets it. She understands that she does not belong to herself. And so very quickly, as we close, I, I want us to look at Hannah's prayer, which points to the person to whom the story points. So if you got your Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It says this. The bows of the warrior are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who had many sons pines away. What's the pattern here? What's she saying? She's saying the strong are weak, the weak are strong. She's saying the barren are fertile, the fertile are barren. She's saying the full are empty, the empty are full. Hannah is discovering how the Lord works in your life and in my life, and it finds its culmination down in verse 10. Look at this. She says, the Most High will thunder from heaven. See that word thunder? It's the same word that we talked about with Penina. Will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let me ask you a question. Who's she talking about? Israel has no king. There is no king. So what is she saying when she says, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed? Is she pointing to the first king, Saul? Nope. Is she pointing to the eventual rule and reign of David? Maybe. I think you could make a point for that. But ultimately, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she is pointing to King Jesus. 
And here's how we know this. Because eventually, centuries later, another woman would find herself unexpectedly pregnant through the intervention of God, and she bases her prayer, Mary bases her prayer entirely on the prayer of Hannah. Why does she do that? What's the point of that connection? Well, through the intervention of the Holy Spirit, the point is to say Jesus is the fulfillment of the salvation that Hannah experienced in this story. Jesus is the point. He is the ultimate culmination of everything that we're reading about, the embodiment of the pattern of salvation that Hannah experienced. Think about this Jesus. He was born in a manger. He was dehumanized. He was spat on. He was brought to a cross, and he was crucified there. Jesus the King, he does not go to a throne. He goes to a cross. And so here's the point for us, friends. Salvation for us functions exactly the same way. There is an offense and a comfort that we have to come to terms with. Here's the great offense. The great salvation of Jesus tells us that it is not about your morality, your goodness, the things that you can do for the kingdom of God. It is all about what God has done through Jesus Christ for you. And so in exactly the same way that we ended last week, Pastor Adam, he told us to stretch out our hands. Why do we do that? The first reason is to receive a gift. What a comfort. God has made a way when there was no way. But here's the second reason. It is to acknowledge that you have nothing to give of yourself. You come with empty hands. And you have to say, God, all my accolades, all my sense of identity, everything that I've been putting my hope and trust in, I gotta let go of those things. Even my morality, I have to let go of all of that and I need to say, I have nothing I can give you. And I come with empty hands. My friends, are you ready to make that sort of commitment today? Are you ready to come to God with open hands? Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.